Well, it's hard to imagine after more than 200 episodes, which still kind of catches me off guard a little bit, but this is only the second time we have dug into the well of former league employees. He got out. I'm still <laughs> in. Not a league employee, but I'm still working in the league, and he's definitely on the periphery. But Aaron Bell makes time to join our podcast, the former director of communications at the Ontario Hockey League. It's great to see you here, have you here. Thanks for making the time. You bet, Mike. I'm very happy to do it. So can we talk a little bit about your time uh, in that inner sanctum? What was it like working in the league offices between, I guess you were about 1998 till 05 or so? Yeah, about that. Yeah, hard to believe. 25 years ago, I first started there. And yeah, it was uh, it was quite a ride. I mean, to begin with, I had no business being there at all to begin with. It was kind of one of those things. I grew up here in Belleville, um, cheered for the Bulls, always thought, you know, how exciting would it be to get a chance to work in hockey, work with the Bulls, um, that kind of thing. And, you know, I got a chance first to work in the, with the Canadian Hockey League with a company called CHL Services. And they used to do like the merchandise, the branded merchandise for the whole league. Um, so we did lots of pucks and mini sticks and jerseys and things like that, souvenirs. And so I was kind of a sales rep type of type of role and production manager and, um, you know, got to know people that way and doing, you know, different jobs with teams around the league and getting to kind of know the league a little bit, understand the league a little bit that way. And that was uh, that was a pretty interesting job for me. And um, I remember very early on. To no fault of my own, I will say, <laughs> to the end of days, um, the business, they decided to close the business. And it was run by a company down in Dallas, Texas. And they just decided they didn't really want to be in the hockey business anymore. And um, at the time, I have a, a baby daughter at home. <laughs> we had just leased a new van. We had an apartment in Scarborough. And uh, I'm thinking, uh-oh, what am I going to do now, right? And lo and behold, Ted Baker calls me from the OHL, who I got to know a little bit through doing work with the with CHL services. And he said, hey, we've got this position here. Would you be interested in talking to us about it? I'm like, yeah, it took me about one second to figure that one out. But yes, I would. So he said, well, he told me a little bit about it, said it would be a lot of sort of information media services. And I said, OK, I don't know anything about that, but I'm eager to learn and, and excited to be part of that. And uh, so he said, well, why don't you meet me and Dave for lunch? <laughs> I'm like, okay. And I'm thinking Dave is David Branch. And I'm thinking, okay, for lunch. So fortunately, <laughs> I was smart enough to put on a suit, get a couple of resumes printed, and, and go to lunch at the keg in Scarborough and uh, met Dave and, and Ted Baker there. And um, sure enough, it ended up being basically a job interview, although very informal. And um, they asked me, you know, if you're interested in being part of this, we'd love to have you here. So of course I jumped at the opportunity and it was just after I got there that I realized they had actually um, interviewed several people. I think it was 50 or 60 people or something for the position. And I'm thinking, how did I get this job over those guys? Like I had no experience in the media other than I had created, you know, a little local sort of sports paper in this area um, so it was kind of just dumb luck, I thought, but turned out really well. And obviously a, a great break for me and, and something that really changed sort of the whole arc of my life for sure. Well, you were the director of communications in the league when I started working in it. And, you know, you, you might be a little bit on the humble side here, Aaron, because you are credited with a couple of things from your time there at the league offices, including 
helping get the annual priority selection online. So there must have been some kind of vision that you should deserve <laughs> credit for here. Well, thanks, Mike. Um, yeah, and that was uh, that was one heck of an interesting time for sure. And that was really kind of the beginning. I wouldn't say the beginning of the internet, but you know, I remember creating a new website. I remember registering the domain, and OHL.com was already taken, so I had to make OntarioHockeyLeague.com. So everybody who's ever cursed having to type in the whole thing, especially back in the days when you actually had to type it in, it didn't just autocorrect for you. But that's why. And uh, I remember Dave, Dave, and, and the team. We kind of met together, and he said, you know, we really want to change the way we do the priority selection, as opposed to kind of having the in arena sort of experience where people are there and sitting through it and that kind of thing. And we said, well, okay, let's, let's take a crack at this. And I remember some funny stories along the way of doing that. Um, we worked with a company in Toronto called ILAP, Internet, Internet Light and Power, I think was their name, kind of a, a play on the, on the band there. And uh, they, they were the brains behind kind of creating the whole system. And it was up to myself and, you know, working with Ted and Herb Morrell and Dave, obviously, um, to come up with, you know, a process that wouldn't fail, right? That we wouldn't be sitting there doing the draft and all of a sudden, you know, we get a the spinning wheel of, of nothing's coming up on your website type of thing. And so that was kind of challenging. And I, I'll never forget the very first year. So before we actually had it, we did a, a meeting. We were in Sarnia for the All-Star Game and we did a, a kind of a mock draft where we had all the GMs in one room. So picture this. We're in Sarnia at Lambton College, and we've got a like a computer lab, and the 20 OHL GMs are around these the, the lab, logged into these computers. We're talking about um, Larry Mavity was here then, um, Brian Kilray was there then, and you know these kinds of folks. And we're doing kind of a test of the draft, and all of a sudden it just kind of zapped and stopped working for some reason. And I remember hearing uh, Killer Brian Kilray somewhere in the back say, "Oh, and we're trusting this guy to run the draft for us," kind of thing. And uh, and Mav jumped up and he kind of, well, didn't jump up, but you know, certainly kind of came to my defense, saying, "Hey, like, let's give it a chance," type of thing. And I'll never forget, you know, that was was certainly something that you know meant a lot to me because here I was, this kid that didn't really know what I was doing, felt very insecure that you know here I am trying to run this draft, not really not a hockey guy. Um, but also trying to help make this thing work in a way that was going to be, be professional and be a good experience and all those kinds of things. And <laughs> yeah, that was kind of fun. And then the next thing I remember is when we did the draft. So the OHL office is right at uh, Milner Road in Scarborough. And my apartment was literally two blocks away. I could see my apartment from my office window. And um, our backup plan on that very first draft was, we go to my house and dial up the internet there. Like if the internet in the building fails, what are we going to do? So we had, and this is certainly before you, you're going to just dial it up on your phone and get any decent service. And so that was the plan. We're going to go over to Aaron's apartment and, you know, the kid try to keep the kids quiet and we're, cause we're going to log in and do the draft from there. Fortunately, we didn't have that. We had good luck. Everything seemed to work well. And we had some really good people that were working with us to make sure that there were lots of different fail safes. That was kind of the, I wouldn't say the, the doomsday or the worst case scenario, but probably pretty close. Cause I remember one of the people saying, well, like what if a truck hits a pole outside of the door or outside of the office and we have no internet or we have no power, what are we going to do? So we kind of were going to that kind of effort of, well, let's make sure that this works, especially the first time, right? 
because if it doesn't work the first time, then, you know, no one's going to have confidence in it and that kind of thing. But that was um, the kind of a couple of those things along the way that could have derailed it, but didn't, fortunately. Good teammate, that Larry Mavity guy. He must have been standing up for the fellow Bellevillian, <laughs> Bellevilleite, but you guys must have known each other from Quinty region. We did, yeah. 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 Just one of the great guys um, in the history of the league, but certainly one of the great guys in the, in, in my own history and, and, you know, people that that I really looked up to and, and certainly, you know, gave me kind of a helping hand along the way to say just, hey, you know what, you're doing a good job. Just a little thing once in a while where you'd kind of go, you know, your confidence is kind of wavering. And that was a perfect example where my confidence was probably way more than wavering. I'm pretty sure I was sweating bullets. And, uh, you know, just a, a, a good kind of, you know, hey, it, it's okay. We're going to be okay here. Like, you know, keep doing what you're doing. And, and yeah, made all the difference in the world. Just some great people that I got to know in the league. And Mav was certainly one of them. I can just envision that that wisecrack <laughs> from Killer coming from underneath the cloud of blue cigar smoke, right? Like, did you manage to get him to put it out before he came in the lab? <laughs> I, I can't, I don't believe he was smoking at that particular time. But yeah, I, I certainly have a bit, of, you know, our, our memories are a little fuzzy sometimes. That's my memory of, of that day. There certainly was a, a haze of blue smoke there to go along with it. <laughs> you know, considering those origins Aaron of the website and getting it going and bringing the draft online etc do you do you look at the site today and all that is created for it and all that it offers the fans etc as as a little bit like a child that you've watched grow up over all these years yeah somewhat I mean I've been disconnected from it for quite a while but yeah I absolutely do Another huge element of it that made, I think, a big monumental change was when we went into the live statistics era. And um, I, my dates are pretty fuzzy, but I remember prior to that, what we used to do is we had a statistician. Well, Herb Morrell was our guy in the office, still is there and, you know, terrific, has a terrific head for those kinds of things, really understands it. And I remember we had a lady in, uh, in Calgary and every team at the end of the game would fax their game sheet to the lady, Kathy, in Calgary. And we were taking advantage of the time difference. And she would input all the game information into the stat system. And then it would run reports. And the next morning, you could go online and you could see who the scoring leaders were, who, what the standings were, and things like that. But it didn't happen live. It didn't happen in real time like it does now. And I remember you know, looking at that and thinking, this is a great opportunity for us to bring the league forward, you know, in a big way by having these, these, this game information happening live. And that was another thing we, we kind of worked with that same company that we had worked with for the, the draft and, um, and built an online system where teams could enter the information as it went. And that really changed, I think, a lot of things. And one of the other things it did is it made a huge impact on the amount of traffic that the website got. So instead of logging in in the morning to see what the stats were, people could kind of see it in real time and see what the game scores were and that kind of thing. And then, of course, it evolved to you could get it on your phone and all of those kinds of things. So that was that was definitely one of those. But, yeah, I look at it all the time and, you know, I use it a lot for different research and things like that and think there's just so much great information there. And to think that, you know, when I started, you know, none of that was available. It was very much a you know, I get a call from the, the Kitchener Radio folks saying, hey, who's the scoring leader for this or that? And, you know, you'd literally be doing a lot of that stuff by phone and sharing it that way or email. But yeah, that once we got it live, that seemed to, I think, really change things and make it take it to the next level for the whole league. 
I can't imagine, to be <laughs> honest with you, Aaron, the the number of points of contact you would have had from media members, from teams, et cetera, as that guy, the director of communications with the Ontario Hockey League. You must have been, you know, your your phone was probably ringing all the time. It was it was definitely, you know, a, a busy spot. Now, when I got there, um, Herb had obviously already been there for several years. Dave, David Branch obviously had been there for several years and Ted Baker had been. So often it took people a while to even think, oh yeah, we can call Aaron now to get that information. So I wasn't necessarily the first point sometimes, but um, certainly was enough that, you know, had a lot and met so many wonderful people working, working the different event games, Memorial Cups, all-star games, things like that. And, you know, it's just such a, an unbelievable league. The people are really what make the league you know, special. And, you know, you hear people say that all the time, but when you work in the league and you start to sort of see things, especially as you get older, as you know, we all kind of, as we age, we start thinking, oh, you know what? I kind of miss these things. Or I sort of start to maybe appreciate how people act and how people treat you. And it, it, it really is a pretty special thing. You talk about those special people and the events and those things that make work in this area so much fun. Uh, it's it's always different, it seems. But is that what led you to what you're doing today with Lot 48 Productions and Hockey Docs? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, when I um, when I left the OHL working there full time, basically, I wanted to move back to Belleville. I knew my kids were getting into sort of school age. And I was like, you know, I want to I don't want to raise them in Scarborough necessarily. I'd like to move back to Belleville. We have family here. Um, my ex-wife, their mom had family here. So we wanted to be here. And fortunately, you know, I was able to talk to David Branch and the, and the rest of the team there and, and work out a way that I could keep working while being sort of remote. And today in 2023, everyone's working remote or lots of people are working remote. In 2005-ish, when I did that, they weren't. And it really was an adjustment, but fortunately you know, had the support of Dave and, and the team and they were, you know, willing to try it and, you know, it worked out. And the, one of the cool things is from that evolved the whole OHL images program as I started kind of doing some more photography and we were having some challenges with just keeping up with the demand of photos that were needed once we got into sort of the social media era and, you know, that kind of always on type of thing. And, and from the media and folks looking for lots of images and quickly and so that's kind of where the OHL images program came from. And that also kind of extended my career into the OHL as well. It was a bit of a self-preservation thing, you know, and being able to keep doing that. But, you know, again, just kind of another sort of chapter where I was able to learn a lot and work with so many great people. But you're right, like the people in the league are, um, you know, second to none. And you see that in so many different ways. And, you know, very, very blessed and very fortunate to spend so much time there. It would, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask about life in that office, working as closely as you did with the two guys that get all of the pub still to this day, for better or for worse, in mm -hmm. Ted Baker and David French. What was it like being around those guys <laughs> on a day-to-day -day basis? <laughs> well, we're, we have to restart here. Lots of time. <laughs> say first and foremost it was interesting like there was always certainly things going on because things would happen 
that you didn't expect, you know, an on ice incident, an off ice incident, something that all of a sudden would kind of sound the alarm bells and just throw everything into out of, you know, out of your normal day to day type of thing. Um, and, you know, there were certainly times where you're like, what's like, what's going on here? Are we, um, you know, are we, are we doing the right things? Are we, are we, you know, making sure that we're doing the things that we want to do in the way we want to do it? Um, but I would say that overall, it was um, such a positive experience, despite there being opportunity for lots of negative things going on around us. Um, one of the things that really stands out to me is David Branch is and was always more focused on doing the right thing than doing the popular thing. And that's not an easy thing to do, especially when you're in the position that he's in, very visible, very public. You know, I remember so many times being with Dave in at a game and, you know, people just saying terrible things to him. And, you know, he was so good at just saying, you know, people would obviously, you know, often be critical of the officiating or something. And I remember sometimes he'd just kind of say, yeah, I agree. That was a terrible call or something. And I remember thinking, wow, like he was just really good at disarming people that were maybe coming in loaded for a fight. And, you know, he's certainly capable of a fight if he needs to be, but was always very good at that. And I learned so much from, from Dave and Herb and Ted and everybody in that office um, but Dave in particular, you know, just in the way that he always did the right thing for the right reason and put the players first. And I know sometimes people are critical and I totally understand that and, you know, maybe laugh at that or think that's not true, but I saw it firsthand day after day after day. And whenever there was a decision to be made, he always defaulted to what's the right thing for the players. And when you're talking about a commissioner of a hockey league, in particular junior hockey, and, you know, we've certainly seen in the last, you know, calendar year or two, some huge issues there, some big challenges, you know, that was the right approach and is no question why after all these years, he's still the guy in charge there. You've mentioned Belleville a couple of times, including <laughs> the interest in getting back home place to raise your kids. I don't blame you for one second. I have a great fondness for the Quinty region. I really miss having Belleville on a stop in the OHL. Maybe we'll get to that in just a minute. Sure. But because of your deep roots there and your connections to that community, tell me, Aaron, about the Crawford family and, and what they mean to junior hockey, major junior hockey in the city of Belleville. Sure. Um, the Crawford family are just, you know, first of all, character off the ice, incredible people, um, you know, just an incredible legacy that they've done from Floyd, their father, who was the captain of the Belleville McFarlands team that won the World Hockey Championship in 1959, the Allen Cup in 1958 under incredible odds. Um, and then you get into the, the kids. So Floyd and Pauline, his lovely wife, um, had nine kids here in Belleville. And, uh, you know, Mark, obviously, Lou is near and dear to many people's heart in the, in the Kitchener region. Um, Mark and Bob, three, three boys that all played in the NHL, incredibly. They're all coaches and teachers in different ways. Um, some of the other brothers, like Todd, for instance, just recently retired from a local high school here and has spent his career teaching young people how to get ahead in life, how to succeed in life. And that is a common trait through that whole family competitive as it comes anybody that's ever had a conversation with them where you know you were disagreeing about something you would know they fight to win every single time um but just character and class and you know we we me my wife angela and i we made a film 
um, I think going back about seven or eight years ago now about the Crawford family and um, decided that was kind of how we got started with our, our hockey documentary series. And it was just an incredible opportunity to get to really know this family who really we didn't know. I mean, I knew them a little bit here. I knew Lou a little bit from when he was coaching in Belleville, but for the most part, we didn't really know them. But boy, by a couple of months into this project, it was like we were part of the family. And it was one of those things that looking back on, I'm so glad that we did that. Um, you know, both of the parents, Floyd in particular, was able to, at the time, come and watch the, the film at, the, at our local theater and see it. And you could just see his eyes light up when he saw his teammates, his former teammates and people. And his fam the family really shared with us that that was a special opportunity for them to see him kind of light up again, despite, you know, some failing health and some of those kinds of things. So I, I've got nothing but, in, you know, great things that I could say about, uh, about that whole family, every single one of them. One of the other documentaries that you worked on that must have had that same personal feel to it was the anniversary celebration of the championship Bulls team from 1999, Charging Bulls. Yeah. Uh, and you also got to, to screen that one, if I'm not mistaken, at the local theater as well. We did. Yeah, yeah, we did. So we've got this, the Empire Theater, it's theater it's called in downtown Belleville. And it's this old theater from, you know, over 100 years ago, but they've just done a beautiful job of redoing it. And if you're a filmmaker of any kind or film fan of any kind or music fans, there's lots of music events there. There's no better place that I can think of to go and watch or go and screen your films. And we've been very fortunate to have our, our films on those that screen several times. And yeah, that Bulls film. So the 1999 team, you know, obviously is the one time that the, this city won the OHL championship. And we got close. Those those darn Rangers kept us from it one more time about almost 10 years later. Um, but yeah, it was just kind of all of the right things came together. Um, you know, you had the, the right players, the right goaltender who was a rookie and kind of from down that area, I believe. And, you know, was just sort of everything came together. And then, of course, Lou Crawford was behind the bench. So, you know, part of the the kind of the legacy of what his team did or his family did as far as championships. And, you know, what a what an incredible honor to bring that story forward. And again, our timing, you know, was was pretty great. Um, we not long after that lost a great friend in Doc Vaughn, who was the the owner of the team at the time and had brought the team in, was a longtime chairman of the Board of Governors for the OHL and just was, you know, a, a very special individual who I who I got the fortunate to, you know, spend some time with along the way. And again, you know, got to show that to him um, shortly before he passed. So in both of those cases, situations where, you know, Angela and I would look at each other after and say, okay, so was that worth it? We do this all the time. Was that project worth it? Should we do something like that again? And in both of those cases, it was just, you know, things that you can't put a price on, right? You just can't. And their family, you know, who, who we are still close with, just had nothing but great things to say about that opportunity for their father, their dad, their husband to see this um, before his time was done. You mentioned those darn Rangers about a decade <laughs> later. So that would of course be the 08 final. And you and I were chatting about this just before we started recording, despite coming up short as the bulls did in 08, what a final we just as oh. fans were treated to <laughs> Kitchener's up three, nothing and the bulls roar back to force a seventh game. Yeah, it's, it's done, right? Like, th you're down 3-0, it's over. Yeah, what what an incredible 
series, as you, as you said. And, you know, I remember like the coaching in that series and back and forth and you just like, okay, you've got, you know, Pete DeBoer, who's obviously one of the great coaches in the history of, of the, of junior hockey and, and, you know, is making a name for himself, obviously at, at other, at the big, the main level. Um, and then you've got Lou Crawford, who, you know, terrific guy, very, you know, lunch pail kind of guy and, you know, absolutely no discredit to, um, or sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm backing up. I'm, I'm mixing up my years again now, but yeah. And then to see, you know, George Burnett and the sort of the tactical kind of way that he approached things. And you're just thinking, what's going to happen here? Like what's going to happen? Who's going to be the star? Who's going to emerge here? And it just seemed like every game, somebody else did that. And yeah, what a great series, you know, obviously fans here were hoping to cheer on another championship team, but you know, it, it certainly was a great one to watch and and to kind of be part of and be able to be involved in for sure. I know the American Hockey League remains there. So there is still and it, listen, it it's great hockey, although I don't think you get quite the same attachment to players because it's kind of like a drop in drop out league, if you will. Mm -hmm. But uh, does Belleville miss Major Junior? Yeah, without question. Yeah. I would say that very rarely. So I've got two two stepsons that are are, are in hockey. Um, I was one, he just finished, he's in 05. So this will be his last year, but they both played for the junior bowls and they have for, for several years. And I would say I probably never once went to the rink to watch them play and didn't get asked about when are the bulls coming back? You know, like you just, I think that people just genuinely miss what was there now, unfortunately, sometimes I'll kind of remind them, maybe you miss something that isn't there anymore anyway, because you know, the, the days of going and talking to Mav and Doc at the bar about the power play that those days have long passed anyway. Um, so I think that there's some nostalgia there for sure about the way things were and how great it was. And unfortunately, I think sometimes then people miss what you have now and what's going on here. And, you know, I've been to some games obviously here with the, the Belleville Senators and it's terrific hockey. You're absolutely right. Like, the, there's an American hockey league team in Belleville. Like what? I'm sure most people say, are you kidding me? Like, how did that happen? And what they did with the building, I think was really good. Like the, the, the dressing room facilities are second to none. I think it's a great place to watch a game. I think they've really done a great job with it. Um, unfortunately, I think the senators are faced with, you know, a constant, yeah, but you're not the bulls. Yeah, but you're not the bulls. And, you know, they did a great job this year of bringing bulls back and doing alumni night. And they wore the retro jerseys. They wore the gold bulls jerseys. And that was a terrific thing. I think people were really excited about that. Um, you're just not seeing people warm up to the team the way that they did, they did with the bulls. And, you know, that's too bad because, you know, obviously it's a, it's a results driven thing where you've got to go to games, you've got to support the team if you want to see the team stay. And uh, so it's, it's different for sure. And I think people miss it very much. So a lot of fans of the Ontario hockey league, Aaron would remember Jack Miller as the voice of the OHL game of the week on global mm -hmm. TV when it was yes. on there on Saturdays, for example, but for people in Belleville, Jack Miller is so very much more. Yes. Yeah. Jack, it was, ne this one was never in doubt, right? Like <laughs> just had the great golden pipes, great way of calling a game. Um, you know, we were, we were very much spoiled having the opportunity to listen to Jack call games for so long, not unlike people in Kitchener listening to Don Cameron call games for so long. I mean, you get those voices that just mean hockey to you. Right. And um, I remember, 
you know, seeing, um, seeing Jack when I was younger and just thinking, you know, man, this guy's really, really done a great job with this league and really done some great things. And I remember we used to have Jack come and host the OHL awards ceremony at the hockey hall of fame. And often that was my job was to give Jack a call and, and, you know, line him up for that, make sure he was good for that. And we traveled together a couple of times for that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, just a, a, a wonderful broadcaster that really loved the league and really did a great job, but more importantly, just a wonderful guy that really, you know, as you know, um, cared a lot about people. And again, like I'd said earlier about, um, about some others, you know, did the right things for the right reasons. And, you know, that that's not as common as you'd hope it would be in this, this day and age in, in this industry. Um, but certainly one of the true professionals of the league and, you know, a real honor to get the chance to work with him whenever I did. One of the stories that may not be as well known, and I, I think it was you I heard in a different interview telling it, but I want to go back to that 99 championship team yeah. and the introduction, the rather sudden introduction on the part of the league of the Wayne Gretzky 99 award. Right. And Justin yes. Papineau was the winner, but what he received was maybe <laughs> not exactly what anybody would have envisioned as such an award. Yeah, certainly not. It was, I remember 1999, there was a couple of things that we did. That was the first year that we really tried to raise the profile of the OHL championship series. We created a logo for it. Um, we started to do the post-game media conferences. And that was part of my job was basically to drive, travel back and forth between Belleville and London. And when I lived in Scarborough, it was pretty much right split down the middle and, um, you know, follow the games, do the post-game media conferences, and just try to kind of raise the profile of, of the event. And at around the same time, you know, Wayne Gretzky had retired and, um, and Dave said, you know what, this is the perfect opportunity for us to introduce a, a very high profile award um, that will recognize Gretzky's incredible accomplishments and, you know, contributions to the game. And so we said, okay. And he said, so we need to get something done. And I remember Herb, Herb Morrell, who was the guy at the league office that was responsible for the awards and, maintenance and creating new ones he's kind of like well like what do you want me to do Dave like the series has already started what are we going to do here these are these are three four month kind of process to create these really nice awards and uh, so he said well let's just get something and then said basically let's just get something that we can present because we want to do it now because it's 99 so we want to make sure that the first one goes this time and so I remember we got just kind of basically it was a plaque like a you know if you get the the bowling championship this is probably the plaque you're going to get or if you you know you're the whatever you know the player of the game for this this high school event or something that's probably the plaque you're going to get. So that was kind of a little embarrassing but we thought you know what let's do it so that we can recognize whoever becomes the player in this championship that you know is the most valuable player. And, um, and sure enough, it was Justin Papineau had a terrific year. And uh, yeah, so that was kind of, <clears throat> I would say less than optimum, but I actually got a very exciting opportunity. Uh, Angela and I, we traveled to Ottawa when we were making the, the Bulls 99 championship team film. And we got a chance to go um, and Pap Justin Papineau lives near Ottawa. So we went to see him to do an interview with him. And we actually had it with us. We had the 99 award, the current one, the, the nice one with the, you know, the nice 99s on it. And um, the one people have, have, will remember seeing presented. So we got a chance to take that with us 
and and get some pictures taken with Justin and with the award and his family. And he was just completely moved by it. And you could see that the kids were kind of like, well, we'd heard you won this thing, but what is this thing? Like that type of thing. And uh, it was just a really special moment to kind of get to see him finally see this trophy and, and get a chance to take some pictures with it. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a special time. So as a guy that sits down like this once a week and reaches out to people like you to say, hey, come on the podcast, let's talk junior hockey for a while. Uh, what you just mentioned about the opportunity to go to Ottawa, meet with Justin, part of the Charging Bulls documentary, which which I've seen, and I know you had a bunch of the alumni back for the anniversary to watch it at the Empire Theater, all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, we talked about Crawford Family of Champions, but this makes me think about your 100th anniversary of the Memorial Cup documentary, which for which you spoke to 100 different Memorial Cup winners. I can't even imagine the logistics of that and the accomplishment. That alone, Aaron, is an accomplishment. But what was that experience like putting all of that together and having those conversations? So I would say it was incredible. I mean, I can't, I don't know the adjectives to use to say how incredible it was, but it was incredible. Um, You talk about the logistics. So Angela and I, we um, we traveled from here from Belleville. Well, we drove to Toronto and then traveled out west to Winnipeg um, to begin with. And then we did a 7,000 kilometer loop in a in a rented um, Chrysler 300 that we completely destroyed. Um, we did a 7,000 kilometer loop through Montana, um, you know, Saskatchewan, Alberta, um, b- into BC. We got into Vancouver. We were down to Seattle. We were just all over the place. And I remember leading up to that, just trying to make, we made a map of the, of the teams that we wanted to cover in the, in this film. And um, I believe there was 20 different teams. And then for each team, we're thinking, okay, so we want four to five, six players from each team that we can talk to. And the the logistics were ridiculous, like (laughs) trying to figure that out. And of course we're talking to people and saying, so we're going to be there on July 4th or 5th or whatever are you available? We're by this. They're like, no, I'm going to be away, but I can do it on the sixth. It's like, nope, we'll be in Seattle by the sixth. Like it's not going to work. Right. And we had a few examples of that where we just missed people. Ray Whitney. I remember we just missed Ray Whitney by, you know, hours, I believe. Um, But some just incredible opportunities to spend some time with people who, you know, obviously reached the pinnacle of success in junior hockey. And so many of them we found, had then used that to go on to have success in the the rest of their life, whether it's as a coach, as a player, you know, obviously a lot of players went on from there. Um, But people like we met people that were now fire chiefs or police chiefs, detectives, um, CEOs, you know, people that had just done all kinds of different things. And every one of them said, this all came because when I was 17 or 18 or 19 years old, you know, I learned how to work with teammates. I learned how to, do my part to make sure that we got where we wanted to go. And I had that dedication and and was able to apply it to that. And to hear that over and over again, it really settles into your mind and you start realizing it's not just a cliche. Like we hear it and we hear it like, you know, hockey might be in particular junior hockey. There's an awful lot of cliches, as you know, and sometimes getting people beyond the cliche is difficult, but they're the cliches because they're true. And when you kept, when you keep hearing these things, you're like, my goodness, what a special thing that is. And to get the chance to talk to, it literally was 100 people that won the Memorial Cup. It was just incredible. Like from players dating way back to the 50s to, you know, as recently as, 
as um, you know, the last few years type of thing. And to kind of stream those things together and put those stories together was certainly one of the highlights of my life. And I know it was for Angela as well. Like we just, you know, we just got an incredible opportunity to tell some stories that, you know, I didn't think I would ever really get the chance to do that, but it was, uh, it was incredible for sure. Do any of those stories that you picked up along the, that process stand out to you? <laughs> yeah, no question. You know, several of them did. Um, I remember um, uh, Pete Stemkowski, who played with the Toronto Marlies and then went on to play in the NHL, is now a, um, a broadcaster or was a broadcaster of the New York Rangers. And we went down to New York. We got a chance to go to Madison Square Garden and interview him. And, you know, he had an interesting story about um, Jim Gregory was their coach at the time. And Jim is just a fantastic um, gentleman that I got the chance to meet several times through the process, mostly in the Memorial Cup selection process and got to know him a little bit. I remember hearing Dave talk about Jim Gregory and, and the influence he had him on him as a young person. And Pete Simkowski talked about Jim Gregory. You know, he got there and he's from Winnipeg, I believe, or Manitoba, somewhere out west. And he, um, he needed a car. And so Jim gave him his wife's car, which I think was like a little Volkswagen bug or something like that. And he gave him his wife's car and said, okay, you can use this for the season. And so in during the season, of course, as a 17 year old kid would, he dinged it up. And then when he went to kind of give it back to Jim Gregory, he said, I'm going back to Maple Leaf Gardens. And I kind of parked it so that he couldn't really see it when he came out, he'd have to kind of go around it to see it. And uh, so he kind of got it and got out of there real quick and, and, you know, tried to sort of avoid eye contact with him type of thing. So he seemed to make it through that all right. But one of the things I remember in making the film, so we go to New York, we're in Manhattan, and uh, we're going to Madison Square Garden. And before we did, we're, you know, obviously just coordinating with the people that work there and stuff. And we get this sort of last minute email, we're on our way there, like we don't really have much time to re react. But basically, they said, hey, you, you're going to have to get some union electricians here. To, to manage the lighting situation. And we're like, oh no, like all we're thinking is how much is this gonna cost? We don't have any additional funding for this. Like, you know, um, Ray Hollowell, our good friend at the CHL office, he's the finance guy. And I'm like, I can't go to Ray and say, we gotta hire a couple of union electricians in New York City, he's not gonna buy into that. Um, so we're talking to them and finally we found out, so the lighting that we used was we had the opportunity option to use battery power instead of plug-in power, which we didn't do because, you know, you plug it in just so you don't have to worry about it. But I remember saying to the guy, well, what if we're just holding the light? And he's like, what if we use the battery power? He says, yeah, no problem. But he said, if you have a light stand, you have to have the electrician there to sign off on it, that it's okay. So I said, well, what if we just hold the light? He's like, what do you mean? I said, well, we don't even need the stand. Like Angela can hold the light. I'll, we'll put the camera on a tripod and I'll do the interview. So he's like, okay, as long as you hold the light, you don't need the electrician. So sure enough, we get there. And I remember we interviewed Pete Stemkowski, um, Steve Sullivan, we had there as well. And um, I think we had one other interview there. And I was like, <laughs> kind of embarrassed because we're in this little, little dressing room, but you know, Angela's there with the light and holding it and trying to, you know, not move and just keep it in the right spot. But, you know, did a great job with that. And it was just kind of one of those things where we left going, whew, that was a close one, you know, it worked out well. But yeah, such, such a great chance to tell some of those stories. And even looking back on those, I'm like, I don't know how we did it. Um, so if you look at it and go, how did you interview 100 people one summer, which is basically what we did. Um, honestly, I don't know. It, if you had to do it again, you, you wouldn't be able to do it again. That's for sure. 
It is absolutely incredible. That is an incredible accomplishment, no question about it. And I wonder if after all those conversations with Memorial Cup champions, if a theme emerged, Aaron, that you could, you know, if you were putting together the recipe, the, the, what, what would the ingredients be for that success? say the number one thing that I knew that I, we found out and this would be something that not being you know I've been around the rooms I've been around benches I've been standing on the bench taking photos during Memorial Cups like you hear what's going on but I think the thing I didn't realize was that every player in on that team every player in the room has a role to do and they have to not only do it and do it well they have to you know want to do it because as you know, a lot of time you'll get a player that comes in that maybe is a scorer in, in, you know, minor midget and all of a sudden they're asked to check or they're asked to do something else. Or you get a guy that's in his draft year who's they're saying, listen, we need you to kill penalties. And, you know, it's pretty easy to say, well, that's not me. No, I want to, I want to be the star. I want to score goals. But you get so many times where, you know, all the players on the team were the best players on their team up until then. And like when they played in minor hockey and that type of thing. And that was the number one thing we saw so many times they came together as a team. They didn't have any clicks. Like they didn't have, you know, the rookies and the vets and that type of thing. They were, they were a cohesive unit and they all bought into that thing that they had to do to make the team successful. And the best coaches are the ones that can figure out who's going to do that and make sure that they buy in and they understand, you know, if I do this part, we can win. And if we all do it, we will win. And that's, I, I would say, the thing that we saw over and over again. And it's a great lesson for anybody. Like, you know, sometimes like, like you know, when we're doing our work, when we're doing our film, hey, if you if you show up saying, well, I'm not going to be holding the light, like I'm, I'm a filmmaker, that's not what I'm doing. Well, okay, well, it's not going to get made because we need someone that's willing to do that or we need someone that can do this part. And I think that was kind of the, the thing I would say that really stood out to me time and again for every single team that we talked to. Okay. I have to geek out just a little sure. bit here. And I know it's kind of inside baseball stuff, but no as somebody who's in the industry, uh, I've, I've always been, it just worked out that way on this side of the microphone, talking into it or in front of the camera. And I like yeah. to joke with, with production crews, ah, fix it and post. That's my, sure. you know, go-to line. <laughs> you guys could deal with my mistakes later, but you, you come home with all of this footage, Aaron, how the hell, like what was post-production like on that as you're making decisions as to what makes it into this ultimate documentary? Well, I would say it was a nightmare, but here, <laughs> here's the other part. Fix Mike, it in post, Beller. fix it in post. <laughs> yep. Let me give you one other added scenario just to really throw things off. We had to create it in English and in French. Oh gosh. I don't speak French. <laughs> Angela doesn't speak French. Um, so we have to create not only the feature film in both official languages, but we also have to create these 20 little vignettes that we did. So we are interviewing people in French and not speaking French. So I'm asking them often to say, you know, the, I'd ask them a question, they'd answer. And I'd say, could you also, for the people that were bilingual, could you also answer that in French? Sure. And sometimes they'd start, and, and this happens, I'm sure you've seen this, where 
um, for yourself where you'll ask somebody a question and they'll start answering. And then at some point they'll go, what was the question again? Like, what were you asking me? And I'm usually that's okay in English, but in French, you're like, well, I don't really know what you were saying. I don't even know if you're saying the same thing you said in English. And then when we were done, so basically we're transcribed everything and then start kind of piecing it together that way. And then we've got to rely on um, translation people to help us understand what did they say? And then did we grab the right part of what they said? Because a lot of times when you're editing video, you're going to take the beginning and the end and maybe you're missing a word or two. Well, we can't do that if we're, you know, if we don't know what the words are they're using. And then to add to the complication, occasionally, if you've ever done anything in French translation, if you ask three different people to translate it for you, you may get three different answers. And, you know, that certainly added some, uh, some challenge that raised the difficulty level for sure. But you know what, we just kept going because we knew it was worth it. We knew the stories that we had were going to impact people. People were going to remember them. People were going to not know that, that that story ever happened, but they knew that team and it was worth, it was worth doing. It was worth, um, you know, getting it right. I get the sense that's why you and Angela do what you do because the stories are worth it and you have a passion for the game and and you want to share it. Is that really how Hockey Docs and Lot 48 Productions really came to be? Yes, absolutely. Obviously with Lot 48, we do a lot of local kind of um, corporate type production and stuff like that. But those films, the hockey films, we just love telling those stories and they're so it's so gratifying. When we did the 99 Bulls team, as an example, I remember, you know, as we talked about, we had a great opportunity to show the film at the Empire Theater. It's several players back to enjoy it and watch it. But one of the greatest things that happened there is I remember where we were sitting. We were, you know, a couple couple rows from the back or from the front and um, where we could see, you know, Justin Papineau sitting there with his family. Ryan Reddy, who is the captain, is sitting there with his family, his kids who are, you know, in the neighborhood of eight, 12 years old. And there's clips where, you know, you're looking up at this big screen, bigger than life. They're looking at their father, their dad, and, you know, he sort of swears or something or, or hits somebody. And you just see them like their eyes light up and they just laugh. And it was just, you, you can't, you know, I'm trying to explain it, but, you know, until you actually get the opportunity to sit there and see that, to see Floyd Crawford and his eyes twinkling and his kids looking at him like, that's my dad again, you know, or, or these, in this case, the, the, the Bulls team, you know, much younger kids looking at him going, wow, that's my dad. I had no idea. You know, these guys do some amazing things and we take it for granted as fans, as media, because we see it all the time, but they really do some incredible things. And especially when they get to that level of winning a championship, you know, it's just something special. And to get the opportunity to kind of grab that story and hold on to it, and capture it in a way that people can sit and enjoy it and kind of absorb it. I think that's the greatest job in the world. And we're very fortunate to get the chance to do that. Is there a doc not yet done? Is there the story that you really want to tell that you haven't yet told? <laughs> yes, no question. There's definitely some out there. Um, we actually had started um, the idea of doing kind of uh, this area here doing the start to finish, like from the McFarlands and even earlier from the days of Bobby Hall skating, you know, before he joined, uh, before he got into Chicago, um, his brother, Dennis, who's just, you know, obviously also a fantastic hockey player. 
um, through to, you know, the players like Larry Mavity as a young guy and what he did, um, the McFarlands, the Belleville Bobcats, into the Bulls and, and into the current, you know, Belleville Senators, the American Hockey League. Um, I think that there's a history here that isn't better than anywhere else, but it's different than everywhere else. It's, there's a little bit different. There's some nuances to it that are different. And one of the things that we really see is that this community really grew along the same sort of fault lines, I guess, as hockey in a lot of ways. You know, when the Belleville Bulls came here in 1981, you know, Belleville was, I think, 30,000 people and, you know, a little rink kind of thing. And each time it was a new rink that kind of helped drive it along um, from, you know, the Memorial Arena in downtown Belleville, which is, you know, probably soon not going to exist at all. You know, at the time, it was the finest rink in Belleville is what the intelligence or the Ontario intelligence or headlines said, um, you know, and I think being able to take people on that journey is a very important one. And we're hoping to be able to do that one at some point. But boy, it's a big job. And then, you know, there's so many other great junior teams. You know, you think about the Peterborough Peets, who are obviously um, at the Memorial Cup this year. Um, you think about the Sioux Greyhounds. You know, there's some just unbelievable teams. I look at the Kitchener Rangers and think, you know, there's so much history there. There's so much, so many great moments that people love that I think those are all stories that, you know, one day we're hoping to tell because people miss them, people love them, and people remember them. Maybe underrated because he never played in this league, but the pride, I would say, or one of the prides of Belleville, Rick Mahar, who goes on to captain in the National Hockey League, but we couldn't find a place for him to play in the Ontario Hockey League. Yeah. Won the Selkie trophy, right? The best defensive player. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, certainly had, uh, had a wonderful career and a wonderful guy who happens to be Angela's second cousin. <laughs> um, I know I'll, I'll bring that in there. So, you know, her, um, her, her interest in that telling that story was great. And, you know, the more we dug into that, we realized unbelievable career on the ice, no question, but the things he did off the ice here in this community in Belleville, um, far exceed what he ever did on the ice for sure. You know, raising money for um, playgrounds, raising money for, you know, underprivileged kids to be able to enjoy life a little bit more. You know, he really did a lot. And those golf tournaments that he used to hold here were legendary. Like, you know, you talk about the who's who of players coming through here. And I'm sure anyone listening to this that played former players or, you know, that were aware of that will remember the Rick Mahar annual charity golf tournament was uh, one heck of a good time. <laughs> uh, I, I, I want to talk with you a little bit before we go about how you're doing today, Aaron, because I was first made aware from a mutual acquaintance of our Sanaya Sapurji that mm -hmm. you had uh, fallen into ill health and then the league got behind it too. And they let us all know uh, that, that you were having some issues with uh, heart, heart attack, stroke, you name it. It was a tough time. Uh, yeah, what was, happened and how are you? It, well, I'm good. Thank you. Um, it was kind of all of the above. So yeah. yeah, back in November of 2021, so about a year and a half ago, had, you know, woke, woke up in the morning feeling great, you know, texting Angela, she was away with, uh, uh, with, um, one of the boys at a hockey tournament down in Niagara and all of a sudden just started feeling not good. Like there was something kind of amiss for sure. I didn't know what, wasn't sure if I should call an ambulance, like just didn't know called Angela and said, you know, our, our other son was here. I said, could he, you know, let's have him come out. He happened to be home from work. I was kind of in the car. I was going away and I came back 
And uh, he came out to kind of help me and recognize right away, okay, this is a problem. So he called 911 and uh, to the hospital in Belleville, they very quickly realized what was going on with me, which they thought was a stroke initially. It was presenting symptoms like a stroke. And then they recognized that it was actually what's called an aortic dissection. So that aorta, your main valve or your main artery going to your heart tore open, which is obviously whether you're a medical person or not can understand that's a bad thing to happen. So they rushed me to Kingston, had a nine and a half hour open heart surgery in Kingston to repair that tear, um, needed a triple bypass to kind of get things going again. And then, um, you know, weren't sure was I going to survive. Of course, that was number one thing. But if I did, would I walk again? Would I talk again? Would, you know, would I have function? All of those kinds of things. And, um, you know, obviously got great care, um, spent about a month in the hospital in Kingston and then got moved back to Belleville and spent another month in the hospital here doing some rehab and just kind of getting back to literally back on my feet, learning how to walk again and all those kinds of things. Um, you know, had my wonderful wife, Angela, right by my side the whole time and, you know, help, helping me get back to, to where I am now, which is still not 100%. And, and it's pretty clear to me, I'll, I'll never be 100% again, but extremely grateful to where I am, um, you know, being able to walk and all those kinds of things. We went back to see the surgeon um, about six months ago in Kingston, and he just said, you know, I can't believe you walked in here. I, I thought you would spend the rest of your life in a wheelchair. So, you know, just some very obviously dire circumstances that that uh, worked out worked out, and you know, fortunately um, was able to to pretty close to fully recover. And I can't tell you like that outpouring of support from around the league, from around my community, around this whole hockey world, you know, was just unbelievable. I remember Angela coming into the hospital and telling me a little bit about this. And I was, I don't think I really understood what she was saying. She probably had to tell me a few times and to see some of the names of people that, you know, I had known a long time ago and had probably not even talked to in many years that had contributed financially, but also with some best wishes, some wishes, some real, you know, really heartfelt wishes to get better. And, you know, that was just an absolutely incredible thing that I don't know how I would ever kind of explain what that meant to me and to Angela, to my whole family. It was just like an incredible thing that, you know, came out of obviously a bad situation, but just shows you the, you know, the community, this community that we get, have the good fortune of working in and, and being in was just um, absolutely incredible. You know, not a single person listening or watching this on our YouTube channel would have any idea. They wouldn't be any the wiser had we not talked about it. And and I'm right. sure this is the sort of thing, Aaron, that just changes your perspective on life in general, doesn't it? Yeah, no question about it. You know, I, I, I certainly recognize that um, someone was looking out for me there that the, the response, I actually said, when I got out of the hospital, you know, it's too bad. And this sounds kind of, um, a little kind of morbid, I guess, but I said, it's too bad. Most people have to die for this kind of thing to happen. I had the good fortune to actually see that it happened, see the way that, you know, the impact that I had on people that like literally haven't talked to in in decades that, you know, said, Hey, I remember this, or I remember that. And, you know, I hope you're doing well and I hope you get better and those kinds of things. It just, you know, it just, I, I don't know how to put that in words, but it's absolutely incredible. 
the, the care you received that I received in the hospital, the care that I received from the community, the care that I received from the hockey community, you know, my friends and family in the OHL is just, how do you put words on that? Right. It's just unbelievable. Life-changing for sure. This game is better without question with you and Angela, a part of it. Where can we find the work that you're doing? We want to check it out. Sure. Well, thank you. Um, hockeydocs.com. Um, or on YouTube, you know, you can find it on YouTube, but hockeydocs.com is probably the easiest way to go and kind of find the stuff that we're creating. This has been uh, so much fun. We've been crossing paths in so many different ways, kind of like ships in the night over all these years to get the time to sit down with you and have this conversation. Uh, very grateful for it. Thanks for joining me. You bet, Mike. I'm very grateful as well. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Jeff Woods and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. Had all, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all had. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.